Welcome to Cowan Insights, a space that brings leading thinkers together to share insights and ideas shaping the world around us. Join us as we converse with the top minds who are influencing our global sectors. Hi, thank you for joining us for this exciting podcast on the future of luxury with the CEO of Saks Fifth Avenue, Mark Metric. My name is Oliver Chen. I'm Cowan's retail and luxury analyst. We'll be kicking off our retail and luxury podcast series on the topic of the future of luxury. Thrilled to be joined by Mark Metric. He's president and CEO of Saks Fifth Avenue. By way of background, Mark joined Saks executive training program in 1995, eventually becoming its chief strategy officer. In 2015, he was promoted to the president of Saks Fifth Avenue. He has a long, illustrious career in retail, and I particularly think of him as a, a left and, and right brain expert and an executor as well. So the luxury and department store space has seen undergoing disruption in recent years with the rise of digital and e-commerce platforms. Our view is Saks has responded by trying to innovate and elevate the in-store shopping experience and developing its own digital capabilities. Mark, I'd love to start off by asking you your latest thoughts on what are the three biggest changes in the luxury industry now and how is Saks positioned to compete? Yeah, hi Oliver, and you know, thanks for having me today and um, it's always great to, to chat with you. Look, I think, you know, today, obviously, when you ask about challenges, you might get a much different answer. So what I want to do is step back and be um, just a little bit more uh, just abstract, not abstract, but just, uh, you know, from a different perspective than the current crisis that we're living in. And I would tell you, if you think about the big changes, you know, really, it's, it's the verticalization of our supplier base. I think that's been a big and evolving um, um, move over the last, call it decade, but really um, has accelerated and become amplified over the last, call it year or so. Then you have the introduction, or shall I say, again, amplification of the re-commerce um, push, which, you know, it, it, it was built for luxury and it's, it's really going um, and really changing and disrupting sort of, you know, how we do business. And then last, I would say data being the great equalizer. And I think that, you know, forever luxury had the sort of the, the, the grip on data, knowing the consumer and really being having that personal relationship with them. And I think that data and people's ability to mine it and really get after it has changed and really equalized uh, or, or, or is equalizing uh, the table. Mark, one theme we think about is this theme of magic plus logic. So how do you integrate data into the customer experience? And what are you thinking about at Saks in terms of a connected customer journey? Yeah, I think, and you, you answered the question, I think really the, the, the magic um, is the consumer wants to feel like when they enter Saks, they're entering our ecosystem. Um, you know, and you know, the, the, the challenge with bricks and mortar retailers that have gone digital um, versus the native pure plays are that you know, our processes, our systems, everything was built around the store interaction. And then we plopped these digital um, stores on top of them and the pipes aren't as connected as you'd want them to be if you, if you sort of opened up your business um, in 2010. So the consumer feels like their relationship with Saks starts when they enter our web browser and goes all the way through the, 
when they're standing in our store checking out or when they're calling our customer service lines, they need to, we really need to do better to make sure that the customer's entire journey through SACS is one journey and not two or three individual journeys that then can even be splintered further with each transaction being its own journey. So you could have one customer across our, our digital experience, our BRICS experience, and our contact centers. One transaction can have three different touch points. And then if they transact twice, um, it's exponential. So I think the future for us is one, connecting those journeys seamlessly. But most important, Oliver, as you look at and, and you ask me, you know, what's your raison d'etre? It's going to be my stylists and my stores. So getting them the right data, arming them with the right level of information about the consumer so that they can better serve the consumer's needs in a faster, more efficient way. That's how I'm going to win. Mark, you've had the, the benefit of seeing, you know, decades in retail. So and calling, you know, Saks an ecosystem is quite unique in itself. How, how has um, the Saks brand and what experiential retail means uh, at all uh, changed in, in your tenure in the industry? You know, I started at Saks and, you know, when, when I think department stores were sort of, um, you know, they were at the center of it. They were sort of the arbiter. Uh, they were the authenticator. They built the brands. They were the platform. And I think the biggest shift you've seen in our industry happened while um, I've been at Saks. Again, it's been a long time, but is the, the brands essentially became the hero. The brands became sort of central to the consumer's relationship with Saks. So um, as you think about the evolution of what our place is in luxury, our place has moved from being the, so to speak, the launch pad or the, single, the singular platform to we are the editor. We are the fashion authenticator from the standpoint of, you know, if we're carrying the brand, it means something, it means luxury, it means quality, it means authenticity. And you're going to need that in a world where almost anyone can say anything in a DTC environment. Um, and that, that's how we play it. As far as experience goes, I think in luxury, um, Oliver, and I'm very careful because not department stores, in luxury, shopping is still an experience. The feeling, the touching is theater. And I do believe that the stores like ours have a very important place in that. And Mark, what do you think about your customer profile and customer demographics? And what do the customers of today care about um, versus call it 10 years ago? You know, it's, it's, I think, again, in luxury, when you think about so many of the important things that we're facing as a fashion community uh, right now, um, some of them are inward, okay? And I think luxury is going to be, is, is later to the sustainability party, I think, than others. And I think that's, you know, we can talk about that for hours. I think that what's tried and true, what's really important to the consumer in, in luxury has always been, which is, phenomenally great product, beautiful fashion first and before anybody else. And that's what the customer that's walking into Saks wants. And we're learning that, you know, if there was a proof of concept behind that, Oliver, it's now, it's in this pandemic and this crisis, people are still reacting to fashion. They still want fashion. They still want newness. They still want the brands. 
and even in the time when I couldn't tell you three places they're wearing it. Um, and that's because that's what's important to, to our customer, not because, you know, they're deep and they all, it's, and the environment's important to them and, and, and all of that. It's just for sacks, for luxury product, product is the, is the hero here. Fashion is the hero. So Mark, that opens up to a few topics. So what do you see with online and digital at Saks and, and luxury goods at large with penetration and also differentiation happening over time? And then also uh, the pandemic and the crisis, um, what are some permanent versus accelerated changes um, and what's been surprising to you? Well, we'll start with the digital um, question. And, you know, look, I think Saks is already fairly well penetrated in its digital space. It's tough to look at it, Oliver, as you might on a pure metrics basis, only because, you know, we do considerable amounts of volume with folks who aren't, who don't trade online at all globally. So when you take those out of the denominator, we're a fairly well penetrated digital business. I see that penetration, you know, obviously going up over time with channel shift. But I'll say this, I'll say that the stores still are gonna be important because they're the theater. And, you know, uh, I think that, you know, the digital arena is for transaction and the physical is for experience. And it's why there's going to always be a place for marketplace online and luxury marketplace and sax.com and, and others. And I think it's important and it's where our investment is being made right now because um, you need to make sure you answer the bell with the most frictionless, easy um, experience that you can have. But at the same time, I do think that in luxury, the theater um, is, is, is as important as it's ever been. As far as right now in the pandemic and what we're learning and what we're seeing and what's permanent, the beautiful thing about what we do, you know, and Oliver, you're so close to the industry, uh, it's always changing. I mean, this crisis, and it's been terrible, um, has been an accelerant, I think, of what was, of what was already going to be happening over the next couple of years. So I don't see much of what's changing right now um, being not around anymore. I see it changing. You know, am I going to have hundreds of Purell hand sanitizer stations all around my stores in, in three years? No. But am I gonna, you know, look, look at all the buy online, pick up in store stuff you've been talking about for years. You know, it just got really introduced in, an, in a big way to the luxury consumer. Um, but it was always coming. Um, and you think about new ways of shopping. You know, people wanna shop where there's less people shopping. That's not a new phenomenon. Um, private shopping, um, virtual shopping. Who wouldn't love to get on a Zoom with, um, sitting in their couch in Boca Raton, Florida, and shop our flagship store um, with their stylist, literally on video. Um, so I think a lot of these things are going to be there um, for a while, um, which is great, and they'll change. And that's why at Saks, we're not calling it back to normal or the new normal. We're calling it the next normal, um, because it's going to be iterative over the next few years, for sure. So will the next normal be like the roaring 20s? Um, what are you seeing with the creative process? Because this has been a really unique time for designers to sit back and think and innovate uh, with the product pipelines too. Yeah, I think when you think about the Roaring Twenties, there are so many parallels that can be drawn um, from the Spanish flu into COVID into 
um, the roaring 20s into what we're going to be seeing when we come out of this. And I certainly feel like um, people are going to want to um, experience things differently and they're going to feel there's going to be a lot of excitement. Um, I do think that uh, there's going to be, as there always is recently, and there's going to be a lot of noise around this. And I don't think we're going to come out um, like a rocket ship, uh, you know, on whatever day somebody says we should be coming out like a rocket ship. But yes, the creative process um, is definitely going to be tilted much towards escapism and as much towards um, fun and, and just, you know, people really enjoying themselves. We've already started with that. I mean, our holiday theme, Oliver, is this is how we celebrate. Um, and it's because, you know, and we, this was a concept that was born over the summer. Um, and it's really about um, what we play right now in the customer's life. The consumer looks to us for escapism, um, for a sense of normalcy, uh, for something that's not serious. And even, you know, it's interesting, our email, you know, you talked about creative. Our emails that were going out, even as early as April and May, um, the ones that were, we had ones that were, you know, all casual and home goods and, you know, things that you and I would say are obvious and that's how we should be tilting um, our marketing. But the open rates on our fashion content were much higher and much better. The consumer responded to those, whether or not they were buying it. They opened the email, they went into the, onto the site, they, they looked at what the product was because fashion is still important today. And I think when we come out of this or as, as we come out of it, as we re-enter is the other time the words we're using at Saks, re-entry um, is gonna be around fashion, fun um, and excitement for sure. Mark, you mentioned theater a few times. Um, what does that mean to you? And how do you permeate that through the organization? And what, what does fashion mean to you as well? And how do you intersect um, this idea of innovation and fashion? Because fashion uh, means different things to different people. Sure. And, you know, let's start with that one. I think, you know, at its core, fashion is how one identifies themselves to everybody else. Fashion isn't just clothes. Fashion isn't just um, leather goods and shoes. Fashion is, you know, how you present yourself, uh, you know, outwardly. And um, it doesn't have to be uh, something with a logo on it. It could just be your point of view um, or, you know, it's, it's expression. So fashion is much deeper for me um, than it might, than maybe people might think it is. Um, but that's what it means um, at its core. And as far as, uh, you know, when you think about, you know, I guess innovation. Uh, innovation is always at the forefront of what we're doing. Um, nobody likes product, you know, and that's a word that we were using for generations in our industry. There are always designers where you look at their collection from one season to the next and say, where's the innovation? And it didn't mean like the iPhone to the iPhone 11 to the iPhone 12, uh, what innovation means today. It meant product innovation. It meant, is there a new color? Is there a new style? Are they changing the fit? Are they reapproaching the sensibility of the product? Are the fibers different? Innovation is what makes fashion, it's what changes what makes fashion go. Um, so they're very, very much connected. And as far as theater, um, and it's interesting because I used to use a great example, Oliver. I used to say, you don't stream Hamilton. You know, you stream House of Cards. You go to the theater to see Hamilton and then you download the soundtrack on iTunes. 
of course, now they've streamed Hamilton because this pandemic um, is the greatest equalizer of all. But there's something about being there, feeling it, um, you know, being part of it. And that's in luxury. That's what the store can be. The store um, is going to be there with the prices that people are paying, with the amount of touch and quality that's required for people to understand um, and ascertain the value for. It's always going to be important to have that. Because I guarantee you the millions of people that watched Hamilton when it streamed over the summer would still want to see it in the theater once it's safe. They wouldn't say, oh, I've seen it already. There's no way. So I think there's a place for the digital experience. And I think there's a place for the physical. Well, Mark, what about the problem with, with traffic and getting less footsteps in your store, you know, relative to conversion and purpose-driven shopping? And also, um, you've been an architect of, of reinventing footprints and also renovating your flagship in a major way. Um, traffic's been a problem in the industry. Yeah, I think, you know, it's always dangerous to paint the industry with such a broad brush. Mm-hmm. You know, look, I, going into the pandemic, okay, which is the new, you know, that's, that's how we're going to have to size things. I'm sure you do it all the time. Um, Saks was positive comps for 11 of 12 quarters. And I would tell you the CAGR, in our stores um, was, was slightly positive over that time frame. So, you know, it's not, you know, and traffic is one thing, uh, conversion is another. So to your, when you say it's intent-based, that's okay, because that's why you might have digital platforms to drive that intent. It's, and that's why I do call it an ecosystem. That's why when we started at Saks in 2015, and I looked at my marketing and somebody said, oh, the digital marketing all gets charged to the internet business and the traditional marketing all gets charged to the stores business. And then we did some multi-touch attribution and we did some some media mix modeling and we realized that our digital marketing was driving a ton of store volume, Um, even more store volume than digital volume. Yeah, Uh, vice versa. Yeah, Yeah. so, you know, it's, it's almost like you can't look at it like that. I don't look at traffic. I don't even look at my channel comps anymore because the customer is so agnostic to how they experience the brand that the way I look at it, Oliver, is what percentage of my customers today are shopping both channels and what should the goal be versus, oh, this is the penetration of your business that's digital because that's meaningless because the higher that is, the worse I'm doing in my stores. and I always get disappointed when other retailers start bragging about it because we have a, a responsibility to the consumer to differentiate from the pure plays and the natives, um, the, you know, the native digital guys. And we have to really be playing um, in both platforms. Yeah. The connected experience and also customer engagement and retention. Yeah. And again, um, harder to do in more moderate space where it's much more of a transactional experience, but in luxury, yeah. you know, you got to mix it up. Mark, product wise, um, you and I have been great friends for a long time. Saks has been on top of thinking about streetification, casualization, and the re constant redefining of luxury product and what that means. So What's happening with product trends and, and the casualization factor, as well as how luxury is, is thinking about um, different kinds of active and streetwear too? Yeah, no, um, I say this uh, with all the humility in the world. I have um, probably the best chief merchant in the world and Tracy Margulies and uh, her team and um, Rupal Patel, our fashion director. Uh, these guys have 
you know, they're the ones that, that do all that. Uh, I'm just a customer like you. Um, but uh, I'll tell you this, I think that right now what's, what's helping our business and, you know, Oliver, you know, over the last call it um, five months or so, uh, you know, Saks has been positive uh, versus last year in business. And, um, and that's with, you know, a basically flat store performance, you know, and that's from, you know, on a rolling basis from when we started opening our stores. And I would tell you that what's carrying us right now is the fact that going into the crisis, we nailed the fashion um, the right way. And it goes back to what you just said. So the team was already onto the, onto the casualization. They were on men's, you know, at Saks, which is our fastest growing business right now. And through the pandemic um, has just been on fire across the entire franchise, not just footwear, like everything. Um, and what I see is, you know, again, what this, what the pandemic has done as it has just accelerated, I think the casualization of, of what people um, are doing, but I think what I would call it, and I'm not going to pretend again, I think Tracy and Rupal handle this, but just what I'm seeing right now is a little bit of schizophrenic um, approach from the consumer. I think what we're going to see is people are going to want to get super casual at times, and then they're going to want to get really dressed up. And especially coming out of this and you know, you're parallel to the roaring 20s, I think there are people that are like, I just can't wait to get dressed up again. So I think we're going to see some of that. But at the same time, I think people are learning how to go to work a different way. Um, and when I say casual, I think it's a more elevated um, casual. I think some of the big winners are going to be the, you know, the usual suspects that you see in, in that, like a Brunello Cuccinelli, um, those, those types of brands. Um, I think what's happening with, with, with the streetification and, and, and there, that's going to continue to evolve. What I love about that trend was it, it's been a trend that's been adopted by incredibly creative and talented people um, who are twisting it and bending it through their own lens, um, whether it's Kim Jones um, at Dior, he's, he's a great example. And now he's you know, at Fendi doing the same thing. It's, it's sort of like um, for men, they're not just going street and then running to the other ditch. They're really kind of taking this and evolving it. So I think those types of trends are gonna continue. Um, it's really, really exciting. And not just because Oliver, you and I are focused on it personally, watching what's happening in men's fashion um, is really important right now. Cause you know, we started five years ago at Saks by saying men are the new women. Um, and it's beyond that now. I think men are really, really finding their own way. Um, and it's been exciting to watch. Yeah, the, the opportunity for brands is to remain culturally relevant, which has shifted. I think one way to think about what we're seeing is fantastical or functional, uh, and functional meaning, you know, adding value and pushing it to the next level with a, where you're offering a lot of features. And then fantastical is, you know, really this fashion play and the newness and the factor, but refined classics and the evolution of innovation with classics is a, a big topic too. So Mark, why, why is men's uh, working now? You know, what are, what are some of the attributes in the marketplace that you've seen on a multi-year basis and you've really been able to capitalize on that at Saks? Yeah, I think there's been, first there's been to, to take your word, there's been a ton of innovation in this space. And I think, you know, when you think about men's um, in even 10 years ago, uh, it was all about um, uniformity. Uh, you know, it was everyone wore the suit and the tie, and that was great. And some of the daring guys took the tie off um, and they called themselves business casual. Um, but really, let's be honest. So I think the innovation here, and it goes to, the, to, to being able to, again, express yourself through fashion um, 
no matter what, whether you were an equity research analyst, an investment banker, an attorney, working in fashion, who, wherever you were, uh, you were able to do it. So I think that's important. I think that, um, and I said this in an interview and got in trouble for it a bunch of years ago when we opened our store in um, downtown New York, um, footwear is a gateway drug to fashion. Um, it was for women um, and, it became, and it was for men. And I think men entered that, stepped in, uh, no pun intended, and just really kept going and pushing and pushing and pushing. And then again, you answered your own question with functionality. Uh, and I think that, you know, men are finding that they can wear really nice clothes and be able to personalize themselves, which again, the whole personalization push, the whole individuality push uh, that's happening right now um, is, you know, gave men an opportunity to say, I want, this is what I want to wear and this is who I want to be. So, and I think there's years and years of evolution here. Yeah, Mark, you mentioned um, re-commerce earlier and, you know, Supreme has been a really interesting, relevant brand too. And we cover stocks like the real, real. Um, what does that really mean for you as Saks traditionally sold and sells new items uh, versus thinking about the post-purchase? Yeah, look, I, I think that um, it's good for the, and I'll use the word again, ecosystem, um, because I do believe one, it enhances the value of the new. You know, if I think I can get a couple thousand dollars for a bag after I'm done using it, I might pay a couple thousand dollars more for that bag. So it, it certainly is on that side of it helpful. I think a certain level of accessibility for luxury is also a good thing, and it really helps the entire ecosystem. Um, I've not gotten into that into that um, that business uh, at this point, and it's because I think you know there needs to be a very high level of authenticity when you come to Saks that what you're getting is, you know, obviously real um, and it is, you can count on it and the quality's there and it's not going to break and, and, and nothing. And once you introduce, even if it's gently pre, pre-worn, you, you kind of, you break that code with the consumer. So I'm not saying never, I'm just saying we have to figure out ways to make sure um, that we can do it in a way that represents Saks um, as the brand we want to be. So I, I, I don't, I'm not opposed to it at all. Um, and again, I think it helps. It's like the way I describe it to folks not in, not in our industry, Oliver, is, is leasing cars. You know, 35 years ago when people were still buying cars, the sticker price on a car was, you know, $50,000 for a luxury car, $40,000 for a luxury car. And that was expensive. But then when you can lease them and you can finance them and you can have that beautiful car, if you wanted to walk in and buy that same car today, um, just, just time value of money aside, that same car is $75,000. So, you know, as long as we treat it with the respect and with the care that luxury product requires, there's a place for it for sure. Yeah, and certified pre-owned and rethinking that and the overification of, of goods and, and luxury. Um, what about your customers, Mark, um, the aspirational customer relative to your a VIP um, high-end customer? You know, luxury can traditionally have a high degree of concentration at the top where top customers drive a material percentage of revenues. On the other hand, um, there's a large aspirational opportunity too. Yeah, I think, you know, and look, we're, we're watching. It's interesting right now. It's sort of a, it's going to be um, case studies uh, for business schools. Um, when you look at the consumer now, the aspirationals actually are what's driving our business uh, through the pandemic. And that is, you know, honestly, because of the experiential um, or lack of experiential opportunity for them to spend. 
So if they can't take the golf trip, if they can't go on the girls' trip to um, uh, to Vegas for whatever, if they can't, you know, go out to eat a bunch of times, or you know, they're going to buy that that product. Uh, that's going to be their new splurge. And I'm I'm calling um, luxury goods are the comfort food um, of the aspirationals right now. Um, there, it's the splurge. It's the I'm going to treat myself because I can't treat myself any other way. And they're important because what's great about an aspirational consumer, Oliver, at least in luxury is today they're aspirational and tomorrow they're core. Um, and that's why uh, I'm always careful to understand, you know, if you looked at our core, core customer, and to your point, um, smaller percentage of the overall count, but a very fair representation of the volume, okay? They might be less interested um, if they had to rank their priorities about the sustainability of product or where we stand with fur or, you know, but at the same time, you know, this aspirational consumer where those things are incredibly important. Um, they are today your aspirational customer, but as they grow in their careers, as she moves from associate to partner, um, you know, or as she goes, you know, you know, from, you know, being a doctor in the hospital to having her own practice, whatever it is, or he, um, you know, uh, we need to be there with them and we need to be relevant in their lives the way they're relevant. So the aspirational plays an incredibly important role in our strategies but more as a future proofing or, um, than, in the, than in the current. Mark, that sounds really critical, you know, converting the aspirational to core. Um, and I'm sure you think about this every day. So what are some of the key principles you're following and what's important as your North Star in, in making that happen? Yeah, if you, if, you, if you think all the way back to January of 2020, I mean, it feels like 10 years ago, um, Saks put a new strategy out called Luxury Disrupted. And it was really all geared towards making sure um, that we were there um, when this aspirational customer arrived. And there's a lot of reasons, Oliver, why we see this as being um, a lot more important than it was maybe um, 20 years ago, um, because this, I think everything's going to move faster. I think there's going to be a tremendous amount of wealth transfer in the U.S. Um, over the next few years uh, that's going to change the, the, the face of who the customer is. Mm -hmm. I also think that the aspirationals are having much more impact um, on the boomers uh, and their shopping behaviors and how they react and how you market to them. So while the core is still there and the boomers are still an incredibly important part of our, um, of our consumer base, uh, they're, they're sort of getting younger also. Uh, and they're moving and what's important to them today um, is going to shift. So we put a strategy out that really stood for personalization and ease were the really two big pushes about what we were going to do. It used to be, Oliver, just about having the product. If you had the product and she had the relationship or he had the relationship with their stylist in the store, you were the winner. Today's strategy is all about um, how you make it easier for them, how you personalize their experience through the use of data, but not with a bot, with their stylist. Um, those two pillars, personalization and ease, are incredibly important as we try to move this this aspirational to core. And then of course, it's all in behind the number one, which is don't forget the fashion. Because I do believe that um, one of the pitfalls of a lot of department stores um, over time were they lost track of who they were in the consumer's life. Um, you know, we're not the consumer's scientist. We're not their political expert. We are their purveyor and authenticator and, and really their place of fashion. That's what we are. Um, we're not a golf range, we're not, you know, a salt spa, you know, all the experiential noise that was out 
on the marketplace, at the end of the day, you come to Saks for fashion. Well, it's our job a, to make it exciting. There's a face gym in there too. There's a face gym and a great place to be. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> La but um, that's right. It's a destination, a trusted destination, and those aspects of convenience, curation, and culture. You know, that's the framework we think of and called the three C's. Um. So, Mark, what what about platforms like Farfetch? Farfetch signed a deal with Harrods, for example, and Farfetch um, has this landmark deal. I've written about you know with Alibaba and, and Richemont. Um, what will happen there? And one of your first statements was increased vertical integration of brands as well. Um, so how do you see this evolving over time, whether you think about brands going direct to consumer and or um, new digital platforms or ecosystems? Yeah, look, I think what, you know, Farfetch uh, and, you know, Jose is a great, you know, he's, he's an innovator and he's a, he's a good thinker and, and the team there has done a, done a fantastic job. Um, and they are a facilitator of verticalization. I mean, the, the marketplace um, gives folks the ability to sell direct to consumer without the infrastructure requirements of um, having a fully uh, integrated uh, digital experience themselves. So I think that's what, that's, that's what that is. That's you know, out there, it's been out there. Um, I think for us, again, we don't try to beat them at their game. We will have, you know, we're going to be evolving and developing marketplace functionality. Um, we're going to be out there. Um, and we just relaunched sax.com actually in the middle of the pandemic, we replatformed our entire digital experience, um, with Salesforce, um, commerce cloud. Uh, so we were already in flight on massive investment in technology. And over the years, we've been investing in technology that fuses together, um, our in-store selling, stylists with our digital experience. So we're developing ways not to combat against the verticalization of the brands themselves, but to be um, an, al an alternative when the consumer wants something um, uh, less specific, less transactional. If they wake up in the morning and they want product X and that's all they want and they want it and they want it fast, um, my job is to make it so they can get it from us. Uh, but really what I'm here for is, is if they want to shop, if they want to experience, if they want a point of discovery, um, quickly, easily, um, and without friction, that's where I want to win. Thank you for that. So, Mark, which part of the job is the most fun for you? And what part is, is would you say, is the, the hardest part of your job as well? Um, I think the, the most fun part is, and this is what I fell in love with the business, and you won't admit this, but it's probably what keeps you in love with the business is the pulse of it is so fast and it is so different from any other um, business or industry that you could be in. When I graduated college in 95, um, I wanted to go in, you know, I was going to work for two years and then go back to business school and then um, go into banking or do something like that. And then I quickly was just, you know, honestly fell in love with the, the change and the pace and, the, and, and just the consumer and never really knowing what you need, you know, never really knowing the answer and having to find the answer and almost being responsible for, for coming up with the answer and giving the answer to other people. I love that. Um, and that's the most fun part of it. Uh, and at the same time, right now, as we find ourselves in such an amazing period of change, some of it um, systemic and already there as it relates to the industry and what, what was happening going in. And then the, the accelerant um, poured on top of, of this change 
wreckage that's been burning um, with, with COVID uh, is, is definitely, you know, very challenging. I mean, everything from learning about the health and safety of our teams and our customers, um, what the shopping experience is going to be like, um, and, and how to make it safer, and how to make people feel more comfortable, and how to make it feel um, fun uh, when so much else around people isn't. Uh, that's certainly the most challenging part. Thanks for that, Mark. So Mark, in closing, I just wanted to ask your take on advice, uh, advice for brands um, you know, seeking to innovate and be culturally relevant, advice for also investors of retailers, what, what's often overlooked, um, and thirdly, advice for students or those interested in, in joining retail. Um, and any closing remarks you may have as well. Sure. I think, look, I think the, the advice for investors is, please, is, is people should not paint the entire industry with the same brush. I think there, are, there were strategically flawed or, or capital structure impaired or, you know, lots of different reasons department stores coming into this were going to struggle. And not all of them were, and not all of them are struggling through this. And there are great um, department store companies that are going to come out of this, um, you know, and, and be better than ever. And I would want people to understand that. As far as advice to brands who want to go direct to consumer, you know, I would just make sure that people understand the, the again, the raison d'etre for a department store, for a multi-branded fashion um, emporium like, like a Saks, understand its value. Um, going to direct to consumer, it sounds easier and it's maybe more efficient from a cost perspective. And, and obviously you have 100% control of your brand. Um, but at the same time, uh, you know, the consumers, you know, they want to know from, you know, an arbiter. They want to know from someone who's, you know, got no specific, um, you know, intent as it relates to your brand, except for making it great. Uh, you know, they want to get that perspective. So I think multi-branded environments are very important to complement um, your direct-to-consumer um, launches and, and things like that. that. That's advice I would give um, three years ago, five years ago, and, and certainly um, today and then tomorrow. Um, and as far as students, you know, and, and folks who are thinking about retail as a career, I would, again, I would recommend that they look at it because retail is such a dynamic and changing industry that people think about department stores or retail and they say, oh, they think about the sales jobs on the floor. They think about the buying office or they're not thinking about data science. I mean, we could have more data scientists than anybody working at Saks 10 years from now, five years from now, three years from now. Um, there's data science. There's, there's planning and design, there's creative, um, there's analytics. Uh, so there's so many different functions inside of our industry that are great. Um, and the industry itself going through such a dynamic change, it's like joining a startup um, right now. I, t I tell my team all the time, we're, we're a 97 year old startup. Well, Mark, that was excellent help and excellent thoughts around what you're doing. Clearly, Saks is a trusted destination, and you've created an innovative ecosystem. And I also agree with um, change and disruption. There's opportunity and also rethinking uh, what magic is and luxury and what logic is and how to really bind those together uh, to drive an emotional experience that's highly convenient. So, Mark, thanks for your time. It's always great to spend quality time with you. Look forward to seeing you in the flagship. Thanks, Oliver. See you soon. 
Thanks for joining us. Stay tuned for the next episode of Cowan Insights.